Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They asked, what are we going to do? Because this man is doing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not even consider that it's better for us that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but also in order to gather into one the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I recall in my boyhood, one of those boyhood humor magazines that had a cartoon in it about a man who he justifiably was going to face the guillotine for the death penalty. And as the time comes to his day, he's keeping, marking it off on his wall, but he accidentally discovers that a brick's kind of loose. And he works on it, and as the guards walk by, he's got to hide it and everything, and, and he works on it and works on it, and, and finally he's up all night. The morning of his execution has come, and he finally gets through the wall, and he sticks his head through to see a crowd. And he looks up to see the guillotine. It had all been designed. Well, that was great boyhood humor, but it was also irony. In today's text, we once again look at our passion history and see the irony in it. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus had raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead who had died that day. He had raised the young man at Nain who had been dead long enough that they were on the way out of town to bury him in the graveyard. But we're about a month away from Holy Week and Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb. And recall, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, long enough that his own sister said, don't roll that stone away, Lord. It's going to stink. His body's decaying by now. And Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. It's an irony to begin with that they plot the murder of the Lord. If he could raise people from the dead, do they honestly think they'd be able to kill him? If he could raise people from the dead and they succeeded in killing him, would he stay dead? There's already an irony in their plans, but today we see the th we discuss the theme, it's better that one man die for the people. And we see that's irony in thinking that their sin would serve God, and it's irony that God made their sin serve our grace, the grace we've received. The Pharisees report what's going on, and the Sanhedrin says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That was the point of the miracles, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus hid his godhood. His miracles gave evidence to that godhood, giving just a peep of it. Miracles in the Bible were always done for people's faith. To point out with Jesus that, yes, he was the Messiah. With his disciples that were given the ability to do that, it was to point out that the Jesus they were preaching about was the Messiah. 
So the Sanhedrin, there's already an irony. The miracles prove that he's the son of God, that he is the Messiah. They should be pointing the people to him. Instead, they say, then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There had been other upstarts who claimed to be the Messiah. They couldn't do miracles. And the Romans had killed them and their followers because people thought the Messiah was going to chase the Romans out of town. But did you catch that? Doesn't it sound great? Doesn't it sound like they're looking out for the nation? Uh, the emphasis there is our place and our nation. They needed the nation to have their place on the Sanhedrin, which was serving them quite well. Finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and says, you know nothing at all. You don't even consider that it's better for us that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Do you get that? It's better for us that one man die for the nation. It's better for us that we murder him is the gist of it. The high priest, the one who's supposed to be pointing to Jesus, the one who served in the temple in a very prestigious manner, the temple pointing to Christ, the high priest pointing to Christ, let's murder him. And it'll serve our position. It will serve God. Isn't that an irony in thinking they're actually serving God by murdering the God-man, the Savior? Do you realize in the history of the Christian church how much false teaching begins in the name of evangelism? The idea that we have to do some false teaching in order to help God out? Oh, today we think of the charlatan preachers who preach to line their back pocket. And when you point out how they're preaching, giving itching ears what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear, they say, but look at how many sheep I have reached out to. As if by their sin, they're helping God out. Never mind the commandment, thou shalt not murder. The Sanhedrin that's supposed to be pointing to Christ thinks they're helping God out. And the same thing has happened in Christian history, as I said, looking at missions. For example, our pagan ancestors, they had a plethora of gods. And they had female goddesses. And they had mother gods. Why, when the church started to reach out to our pagan ancestors, the pagan ancestors had a problem. You have one God, just one God in three persons, one God, and, and the father pretty much represents himself as a father. You have no female goddess. Oh, the missionaries, they thought they were helping God out. said, we'll take Mary, the mother of our Savior, according to his human nature, and we'll kind of promote her up like a minor deity to these pagan people. And once they're converted and we get the whole tribe, then we'll straighten it all out. They never did, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today we have people who still see Mary as co-mediatrix, as co-redemptress, who even pray to Mary. It's amazing. A false teaching that began thinking God needs our help, our sin. We can just we can change God's word a little bit to help him get the word out. Same thing happened. Same reaching out to the same people. They had a plethora of gods. If you needed more bread, you had a little minor deity bread God. Well, how are we going to get them to switch from that? Ah, we'll take a Christian who really stood out and we'll tell them, you pray to this Christian and then this Christian will turn around because they're already dead. They'll, they're before the throne of God. They'll talk to God for you. They'll get God's attention. And once the people get converted, then we'll get away from this whole saint worship thing. Yeah, and we still have that problem today, don't we? 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's always an irony that happens when people think they actually need to sin against God in order to help God out. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin was doing, but behind it all was covering up the fact that they were really just taking care of themselves. And so with that statement, it's better that one man die for the people. We see an irony in thinking that their sin would serve God. Now, as I said in that boyhood comic where the guy's actually uh, digging away thinking he's going to escape and it turns out being it had been planned the whole entire time that he ends up placing himself very passively into the position for the guillotine. When he sticks his head through the hole he finds the whole crowd laughing at him, laughing at his folly. Kind of reminds me of what's going on with God. Allow me not to carry that analogy too far because it can be misunderstood. But think of Psalm 2, the first four verses. The Sanhedrin knows that Jesus is at least from God and they're working against him. But Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage? Why do the people grumble in vain? The kings of the earth take a stand and the rulers join together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and throw off their ropes from us. The one who is seated in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Yes, the Sanhedrin plots the murder of the Lord's anointed one, and God is laughing at their folly. Let me explain. Let's rewind roughly three years earlier, when a prominent Pharisee, who happened to be a member of the Sanhedrin, who will become a convert, meets with Jesus at night, in secret, because he doesn't want to compromise his position. That's Nicodemus. And when Nicodemus meets with Jesus, he says, we know that you are from God. He didn't admit that they knew he was God, but they knew he was from God. He said, because no one could do the miracles you do unless they were sent by God. Who's the we Nicodemus is talking about? It's just him talking to Jesus. He's talking about the Sanhedrin. They knew that Jesus was from God. Now that conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus culminates to the most famous passage of all the Bible and we see its negatives here today. Back to verse 48. The Sanhedrin, who knows that Jesus is from God, who has seen his miracles, and they're really concerned because he's just raised Lazarus from the grave, in verse 48 say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And we hear that high priest saying, you know nothing at all. You don't even consider that it's better for us that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. This is stated very negatively. John 3.16 says it very positively. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, they had plotted the murder of Jesus. But God knows everything. God, God is above time. And so he used this as his plan on how he will end up on the cross. Nobody actually murdered Jesus. Recall, he voluntarily went. Recall that he told his disciples that he could call on a thousand legions of angels to protect himself. Recall... Recall that he had told the apostles this was going to happen. Recall that when he dies, he picks the minute and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
So let's go back to that high priest. John says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but also in order to gather into one the scattered children of God. You and I are part of the scattered children of God. We are the elect brothers and sisters in Christ. God had predestined us. The high priest had murderous intentions in his heart, but he didn't just say, let's murder him. The Holy Spirit gave him the words using the high priest's zeal so that he says it's better for the nation that one man die. And like I said, he ends up stating in the negative what you and I know best is John 3.16. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Sanhedrin plots to sin, but God turns around and uses that as the means by which he'll be placed on the New Testament altar of the cross and die for your and my sins. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, That's a comfort for you and I, because you and I are sinners. Let me give you an example of a time in which I sinned, and yet God turned it into a blessing for others. When I worked at the car dealership, I tell the story that the first few weeks I worked there, the guys that worked on the floor with me, they stayed away because they knew I was studying to be a seminarian. And, and I was working on a truck that was very rusted and trying to get a bolt loose, had my breaker bar, finally it broke loose, slammed my knuckles into the metal. The blood just gusts out right onto the floor right away. And I said some words that a guy who was at the seminary shouldn't be known for saying. Oh, Lord, forgive me. All of a sudden, all those guys in the shop come running forward. I was normal. I was not holier than thou. Oh, Fred, you're normal. I've been struggling with, my wife and I are having this problem, and I know you're studying to be a pastor. Oh, Fred, I have this question about God. All of a sudden, even though I had sinned, and I felt guilty for that, God turned that into a blessing for the other people around me. Now, that doesn't mean you and I should turn around in sin and say, God, turn this into a blessing for us. Paul addresses that in Romans when he basically says, does that mean that we should sin to squeeze a blessing of God's grace out of him? No, surely not. But brothers and sisters in Christ, there have been plenty of times in your life in which you've screwed up and you've sinned like me, and God has turned it into an opportunity to show others his grace. So it's a comfort for us that in spite of our sinful plots even, God turns around and makes that sin serve to his glory and serve to his grace. Now, it's the ultimate irony is the high priest is the one who says, let's murder this guy. Because the high priest was the one whose position pointed to the ultimate high priest, the Lord. This is the last time a high priest will prophesy. In fact, after Easter morning, there needed to be no other high priest. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the one to whom all others pointed to. He is the one who dies for the sins of the nation, for the sins of the world, and he removes them. And as a priest, he offered himself as a sacrifice. Ultimate irony is, while the priest says, I don't want to lose my position, and the Sanhedrin say, we don't want to lose our position, let's murder this guy. God uses it a way in which he'll abolish the high priesthood. He'll abolish the temple. And in the ultimate irony, because of the people's rejection of the Lord and because they continued to use the temple, refusing to see that the sacrifice had been made when they did rebel against the Romans in roughly 69 AD, God used the Romans to destroy the temple and destroy it all. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, for you and I, there's a wonderful grace. They plot the murder of the Savior, and yet the Savior uses that as the very means by which he will offer them forgiveness and die for our sins. Like that inmate who worked so hard to escape and then ended up accidentally, 
ironically placing himself into the instrument that would terminate his life. They plotted the murder of our Lord and God used it as the very means to put the Lord on the cross, which you and I believe in, which gives us salvation and terminated their positions all at once. It is better that one man die for the people. It was ironic and it's always ironic when people think that their sin would serve God. And yet it's an irony that God made their sin and he makes our sins serve to his glory, serve his grace. Amen. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless in the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all time now and to all eternity. Amen.